0: You're listening to Augmented Humanity. Our guests are modern explorers working at the intersection of technology and the humanities. They help us to understand ourselves and the worlds we create in this digital age. They are thinkers, creators, makers, and academics working in diverse fields like civics and government, the law, anthropology, and archeology. span I'm your host, Craig Goldsmith.
1: I'm your host, Ellen Dornan
0: on this program we're joined by mark marino and leonardo flores both with the electronic literature organization leonardo flores is chair of the english department at appalachian state university author and critic mark marino recently published critical code studies at mit press and produces crowdsourced literature with meanwhile netprov studios
1: Thank you all so much for talking with us about this exciting work that you both do. I know some of the things we've been talking about, it kind of sounds like the Wild West with endless invention and imagination, but you both also come out of very academic disciplines. If this is paradigm-shifting reading and writing, paradigm-shifting authorship and readership and engagement... How is the critical approach to literature also shifting as a result of these new approaches?
2: I'm Leo Flores. One of the challenges and one of the interesting things that leads to our critical approaches, and I'm sure Mark can elaborate on these, people are used to reading and print. And the very tradition of criticism is predicated upon print technologies. And so English departments, all the institutions, the core assumptions are all built on the printed page as a basic paradigm. And then, yes, with poetry, some of the spoken word aspect of it. Because this is so different, for instance, the very notion of an ending with a work. Ellen, you and I were talking earlier about Taroko Gorge. And one of the things we discussed was that when you were reading the work, it just kept scrolling, and you kept reading, and it kept scrolling, and you kept reading, and it was a long piece. When I teach that poem, I will prompt my students to write something about it, but I prompt them as follows. I ask them, here's a link to this poem, go read the poem, and then write a short response to how you understand the poem ends. And what happens is, because this is a generative poem that will scroll and generate forever on your browser window, students come back and they're going to be like, oh, you tricked us, right? Or or, this is a machine, it's a generator, and the whole thing. Yeah, I play a little trick on my students, but it just goes to show the paradigm shift. Everyone expects things to end. In print, you know where you are in a book. You know how far from the ending of the book you are at. But also, the very notion of an ending for a poem like that, one of the endings is when you realize it is endless. And another of the endings is when somebody says, ha, let's take a look at the source code of this thing. And you go look at the code, and you see, all right, this is made up of these variables, and this is the data set, and it's drawing from these variables and putting them together these ways. And if you know just a little computation or JavaScript, it's easy to tell by looking at that code. The other idea is, is the sort of realization that this is an endless poem about an endless process. When does a river end? Maybe when it gets to the ocean, it's no longer a river. But as long as you're in a river, it is constant flow and change all the time. The river changes. You change. Everything is flow. If you were to take, say, a new critical approach to this work, where the new critic said, every word counts and is deliberate, and we need to really unpack these words. Well, first of all, they're scrolling past you, and it scrolls past the screen, you can't go back to it. You can't reread it. You have to hack it. You have to do a screen capture. Print out that little chunk. There you have a stable text. There you could do a new critical reading. But all you're doing is a new critical reading of an excerpt. The critical apparatus that was developed for print is in some ways useful, but in some ways completely inadequate. You need to update your tools. What I was calling close reading 2.0 a decade ago, which is you also have to learn how to read code. You also have to learn how to read platform. You have to read the computational environment.
3: I think one thing I would add on to what Leo is saying is, yes, it might help if a person read the source code, but maybe another thing that this has really opened up for me has been collaborative readings. We have a myth in the humanities that there are these things called monographs. They are scholarly texts written by one person who gets all the credit. Hopefully they get their tenure and it's going to be easy to cite, right? But if you look at the acknowledgments page, we find out that they needed the kindness of some friends and maybe even some strangers to get there. If we look at their bibliography, we see that, of course, Newton already knew that they were standing on the shoulders of giants. Again, thinking about the new critical approach, I find it's useful to collaborate with other people. So, for example, I tried to read a work of electronic literature called Project for Tachistoscope Bottomless Pit by a wonderful writer named William Poundstone. And I wrote that with Jeremy Douglas, who teaches in Santa Barbara, and Jessica Pressman, who teaches in San Diego. And Jessica Pressman, the consummate literary scholar, historian, Jeremy Douglas does these visualizations of screen-based works. He was able to take the entire video capture of this one-word-at-a-time story about a bottomless pit and turn it into a three-dimensional object using brain imaging software And then to turn some of those background colors transparent so we could see the bottomless pit that's the core of this piece across time, right? That helped me to see it a new way. Of course, I did my little spelunking in the code and found whatever I could find there. And then we asked each other's questions and we discovered things together. It's also this notion of reading as a team, using different lenses, hopefully lots of different identity backgrounds, life experience, and a whole set of different tools to understand these objects that are made of many different media parts that then benefits from having many different eyes on it, using many different approaches, many different lenses that are all intersecting and intertwining and interacting with one another.
2: People already do this. To borrow a little bit from a concept that I wrote about, I described this sort of third generation of electronic literature that's happening in social media spaces in apps and other spaces like that. The first generation think pre-web. The second generation starts with the web and continues to this day. And then we have this sort of third generation that's really happening in the social media spaces, touchscreen devices, etc. And in that third space, people will post something, a meme, and suddenly the collective reading is so powerful. Not just that, a remixing and a rewriting, because many people, when they encounter a meme, they encounter an idea that then becomes a meme. They're like, oh, I can do one better. I'm going to create an adaptation. And so it becomes this really powerful, creative conversation space where people are responding to that particular piece. It's almost like DJ culture. Yeah. Lots of remixing and this kind of reading how it goes, reading the crowd, seeing how people are responding to these different permutations, variations, and so on. Until they die off. They tend to have a life cycle. They have a moment. That's a fascinating aspect to me. My interest in such pieces from a critical perspective is that it's writing. It's writing on images. We could do this before in magazines, but the context on which they happen, the platforms on which they happen, these things are happening in certain computational environments, but also certain social environments. Each platform already brings in politics. It brings identity. It brings audiences. Digital literature with all its technologies and all its platforms makes us need to pay attention to these platforms, to these spaces, to the new materialities, and so on.
1: I'm so fascinated with all of this, and I really like the approach of having the collaborative reading and looking at different perspectives and being able to look under the hood of the works. And I guess in my head, I keep playing around with where the artistry comes in, because, you know, in your lone author example, that lone author is an artist exercising their craft. But, you know, if we're looking at something like the Tanaka Gorge poem, there's artistry in the creation of the engine, but there's also artistry that everybody exercises in the remixes of what kind of content to run in this engine. It's sort of like your recipe. Well, what if I tried it with wheat flour instead of cornmeal? And the talk about the bots is a different kind of artistry because the artist is so removed. The artist sort of creates the bot, winds it up, and then the bot is the one visibly producing the work. And I guess when we were talking, I started getting a little bit bothered about the Twitter bots because I, too, follow Twitter bots. And recently I started suspecting that one of the bots that I follow is a human. And it's sort of the opposite situation where I was like, well, that's really actually not cool because I thought it was a very clever bot. And then I started thinking maybe it's not a clever bot at all. It's a human pretending to be a bot. And because I had this presumption that getting a bot to do this sort of generative writing was the clever part, and then it's not clever at all if it's a human.
2: Let me give you an example that's even weirder, but just gorgeous, gorgeous. One of my favorite bots, it's called Haiku D2. This is by John Berger, and it searches the Twitter stream, and it detects tweets, and it checks them against a dictionary that have 17 syllables that can be cut without interrupting words after five syllables, seven on the 12th word, and then it leaves five syllables behind that are complete words. Essentially, it's detecting haiku and then what it does is it puts it into the three lines it adds the hashtag haiku and it attributes the author of the tweet so in a way it's detecting haiku from the twitter stream and it gets things like this here's two that are weather related so here's the first one getting slick out there all that rain and melted snow is turning to ice it works really well right Here's another one. This weather got me in seasonal depression. Gloomy all the time. Part of what I love about it, and of course, these just happen to have a seasonal reference, which is sort of part of the haiku tradition. And yet, has John D. Berger written anything? He's written a machine that detects them, that distills them out of Twitter. But he has not chosen these words in these orders. There's an interesting shift in what happens with writing and authorship. Here you are, you tweeted about whatever it was you tweeted, and then you get a notification. Huh, you've been mentioned. And you go look, and you see your own words transformed into a haiku. And some folks might be like, what the hell is a haiku? And they might click on the haiku hashtag and discover that Twitter is full of haiku. So then suddenly, you're like, I'm a poet and didn't know it. I mean, what a wonderful thing.
3: But I feel like Ellen's question raises an issue that's been around for a long time, which is we hope that these things are playing by the rules they seem to be playing by. And again, this goes back to the first book written by a computer, The Policeman's Beard is Half Constructed, which was written by this program supposedly called Ractor. And, you know, eventually, as far as I know the story, it came out that maybe this book was edited after it was generated And then people make all this hoopla of like, oh, I thought computers could write books already. I thought that's what you were claiming. And now you edit them, you know, and it's like, well, most people don't write books. They get edited. And yet somehow we still attribute those to the person, right? Even though there's an editor who's intervened. And I understand that sense of like, oh, am I dealing with the mechanical chess playing Turk again? Is there someone beneath this pulling the strings and making me feel like it's something else? So much of how machines work is obfuscated and even mystified, including the infamous artificial intelligence, which some of it is literally rendered unexplainable, that even those discussions sometimes can get in the way of us talking about what's really important, which was, did you enjoy those tweets made by the thing you thought was a bot? Or the fact that someone even has to pose as a bot is also worth discussing. I don't want to get into the business of justifying deception as art, but again, I think when you say that a computer has written something, it's complicated.
0: Hearing you talk about, well, is it okay to edit what comes out of a machine learning or an AI bot in terms of a textual output? It's like you say, everybody gets edited. All of these things sort of combine in these ways.
3: A lot of digital art has the ability to dissipate the myth of the artist with the capital A that we tend to make sacred in certain parts of our culture, maybe not sacred in other parts. And again, everything from NetProv to the third generation stuff that Leo's talking about says that we're all authors and we're all part of this art making process. Whether we think we're creating it or receiving it, we're part of the art making of the world. I love that.
0: Mark, Leo, this is just the most fascinating
2: conversation.
3: Thank you, guys.
2: Yeah, yeah. Great talking to you both. To you all, chatting with Mark. It's great. <laughs>
3: ah, it's good to see you, Leo.
2: Yeah. And if you would like more information
0: about our guest work, you can visit eLiterature.org online. Augmented Humanity is a program of the New Mexico Humanities Council, produced in partnership with KUNM-FM. You can visit us online and find out more about our programs at nmhumanities.org. Our theme music comes courtesy James Whiten, and we've had production assistance from Tristan Klum.